The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Ecclesia, if you joined us last week, you know that we kicked off a series where we are featuring different women in the Bible. And last week, uh, Pastor Chris gave a sermon on Hagar. And in this sermon, he said that Hagar was the first person in the Bible to name God. And she gave God the name Elroy, which means the God who sees me. And for Hagar, that was uniquely significant because as an enslaved person, she had lived a life where she was often unseen and unheard and not cared for. And she believed in a God who not just saw her, but believed her and understood her. And Pastor Chris talked about the power of naming things, naming people, naming God. And in light of that theme, I selected my character today that we're going to talk about Deborah because my mom had a very unbiased request. Her name is Deborah, and she thought, you should totally do your sermon on Deborah. And my first reaction was no. And then I learned more about Deborah. And Deborah was a prophetess, a judge. She was known as the mother of Israel. In the story we're going to read today, she was a military commander. And I thought, oh, I have to do my sermon on Deborah. But there's one thing about Deborah that I think is kind of unrelatable. And that's that she had all these big titles, these big important jobs, and she's one of the few biblical characters where we never really see her mess up. The other judges in the Bible all had unique human flaws. Deborah seemed to execute a military operation and her position as judge and mother of Israel quite flawlessly. And part of me wonders if Deborah, as the only female judge in the Bible, perhaps she didn't give herself permission to screw up. Perhaps she thought that she had to be perfect because she felt the weight of her identity on not just her shoulders, but all women. And not to psychoanalyze myself too much, but I began seeing a lot of my mother in this character, Deborah, because um, I have also sometimes found my mom unrelatable. My mom, when she was born, God was pouring dopamine and serotonin into her brain, and he, he just spilled a little too much. <laughs> She's just baseline, kind of happy and excited. People will say, is your mom always like that? And I'm like, she honestly kind of is. Like, I grew up thinking maybe I'm just really sad, but I now know she's just really happy. And I have a picture of my mom, Deborah. Um, this was at our Project 88 event. It was a fundraiser here in this church. And what you need to know about this picture is she did not win that game. 
That's all you need to know about my mom. But today, we're gonna learn about the biblical figure, Deborah. And the story of Deborah is covered in two chapters in Judges. The first is Judges 4, which is a narrative account of Deborah and her life. And the second is Judges 5, which is a poetic song, or called the Song of Deborah. And it's more poetry about Deborah and her life. We'll use both, but we're really gonna read and focus on Judges chapter four today. It's a lot of scripture today. I always, I've said this before in sermons, but I believe the Bible preaches better than I do. So it's a lot of reading, but it's a magnificent story if you can hang in there. So Judges 4, 3 begins, and it reads, the people of Israel cried out to the eternal again for help. Since Sisera had 900 iron chariots, he prevailed against and oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So Sisera was the head of the Canaanites and they had oppressed Israel for 20 years, mostly because these 900 chariots were indefeatable. This was a kind of military technology that was superior to what most people had, especially Israel. So Sisera and his 900 chariots were oppressing the Israelites for 20 years. And at that time, Deborah, the prophetess and wife of Lipidoth, served as judge over Israel. She used to sit beneath the palm tree of Deborah, situated in the hill country of Ephraim between Ramah and Bethel. And the people would go to her there to settle their disputes. So people from all over Israel would come to Deborah to settle their disputes. Deborah urgently sent for Barak, the son of Ebenoam, out of Kedesh and Naphtali. She said, the eternal God of Israel commands you, go and get into position near Mount Tabor. Take 10,000 soldiers from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, Jabin's general, to meet you at the Wadi Kishon and his chariots and his army, and I will deliver him to you. So Deborah is making a mighty request. She's saying to Barak, she's saying, go get 10,000 soldiers and fight this army that has been oppressing us, that is more powerful and has better technology than we do. Will you go get your people and fight them? Our people and fight them. And Barak responds in this way. He says, I will do this if you go with me. But if you won't, then I won't go either. Now, I've heard it said that um, Barak was a coward. Here he is, he's saying uh, he won't go fight unless he has the help of a woman like Deborah. But I don't read it that way. I think Deborah was a sturdy and trusted leader and that she made people better. And that Barak knew that if Deborah was with her, that their mission would be better and more organized and well executed. And so Deborah responds to that request, not by shaming Barak for being a coward, but she says, I certainly will go with you. But you should know from the beginning that this battle will not lead to your personal glory. The Eternal has decreed that the mighty Sisera will be defeated by a woman. And then Deborah got up and accompanied Barak to Kedesh. So she says, I'll go, but 
A woman's going to get the glory when Sisera is defeated. Now, during this time, um, I'm going to summarize some biblical text. So Deborah and Barak go up to Mount Tabor, and um, Deborah receives this message from God that it is time to go fight, and God is on their side. And we know that God is on their side for a couple of reasons. In the next chapter, in Judges 5, we learn that there was a rainstorm. And chariots don't do very well in mud, especially heavy iron chariots. So some theologians speculate that these chariots got stuck in the mud. I, I read the story Little Blue Truck to my son every night, and there's this page where it says, the little blue truck gets stuck in the muck in the mire. And that's what happened to the chariots. They got stuck in the muck in the mire. And God cast confusion on them. And it was this perfect storm where they're on mountainous territory, which is not good for chariots. There's mud and rain. And Barak sends his soldiers. And they defeat the entire army of the Canaanites. But one leader gets away. And of course, that's Sisera. Now, you can contrast this to Deborah. When Deborah is asked to join the troops, she says yes. But Sisera just happened to get away. And my guess is that that wasn't a total coincidence. He was the leader. And are you telling me that out of an entire army, one guy survived and it just happens to be the leader? I think he probably dodged some of the danger. And as he's fleeing away on foot, he comes across a tent. And this is good news for Sisera because the tent is an ally of his army. He knows this because it is owned by Heber and Jael, and Heber is considered an ally of the Canaanites. So we're at this point in the story where the wife Jael, or sometimes she's known as Yael, it's the same biblical character. Today we're going to call her Jael. Jael comes out, and that's where we pick up in this story. She went out to meet Sisera, and she said, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. There is nothing to be afraid of here. So he came inside the tent with her, and she covered him with a rug, just in case some of Brack's soldiers came looking for him. Sisera said, May I have a little water to drink? He was very thirsty. So he opened a skin filled with milk and gave him a little and then covered him again. Stand and wait at the opening of the tent. If anybody comes and asks you, is anyone inside, tell them no. Sisera fell into a deep sleep, for he was weary. And this is when Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other and she crept softly to his bedside, and then she drove the peg into his temple, down into the ground, and killed him. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. Jael responded, come inside, and I will show you the man you seek. Jael is a savage, right? She just killed a man with a tent peg and hammer, and then she casually says, Come inside, I will show you the man you seek, as, as she's about to deliver a murder scene. So he went into the tent with her, 
And there lies Sisera, dead with a tent peg driven through his head. Now, it's quite an amazing story. And scholars have compared this scene, this bloody murder scene where uh, Jael gives Sisera milk and he falls asleep like a little baby. And right when he's sleeping, Jael goes in and drives a a peg through his temple. Scholars have compared this, unsurprisingly, to David and Goliath because the underdog is defeating the the powerful leader. Um, Some scholars have talked about um, this actually being symbolic for a rebirth of Israel because after this act of violence was committed, after the death of Sisera, Israel had 40 years of peace. And so in chapter five of Judges, it says that the head of Sisera falls between the legs of Jael, much like giving birth to a baby. I don't know, that's not how childbirth worked for me. The baby didn't just fall between the legs. But it is symbolic, perhaps, of a rebirth for Israel. Also, we know from Judges 5, the following chapter, that in the song of Deborah, for a moment you kind of have some sympathy for the enemy, or at least his family, because his mother, Sisera's mother, is wondering... Where, his son, where her son is. And you can sympathize with the mother worried, why has he not come home? But the empathy only lasts so long because she gives this justification. She says, I think Sisera is not home because he is dividing the spoil and celebrating the victory. So he's assuming Sisera won. And she says, including a girl or two for every man. And so what you need to know is during those times when a military was defeated, all the wives who just lost their husbands became fair game for the military and they would be sexually assaulted by the winners. And I think it's important to know this context because you can understand why someone like JL might have some fury and anger towards a leader like Sisera. Ultimately, I don't believe it's violence that Deborah and Jael were after. I believe it's peace. And that's what I want the rest of this story to focus on. The reality that these two women accomplished a brave and heroic mission, and that although it comes with lots of violence, like the Bible or Old Testament might often come with, The prize is 40 years of peace for Israel. And I think there's many main takeaways from this story. Although we read it and it can some ways feel unrelatable. One of the main takeaways I got from this story, and perhaps you'll recognize it too, is that good leaders build trust with others. You know, in order for Deborah to tell all these people to go defeat this impossibly powerful army, and the people actually believed it was possible and they did it, my guess is that Deborah had a track record of doing what she said she was gonna do. That as a judge and a leader and a prophetess and a military commander now, 
that when Deborah said something was going to happen, people believed her because she had built trust with her people in Israel. When I was in third grade, I ran for my student council. I found a photo of me uh, sitting on the bench warming up for my speech. That is an Adidas jumpsuit. You're welcome. Um, my slogan was, just do it, vote Engen. I stole that from Nike. They never sued me. And um, I ran on a really sophisticated platform, and that was, if you elected me to be on your student council, I would make it so that one day a year at recess, we would have a school-wide silly string battle. And everybody could bring a can of silly string. And as I said this, I sprayed the silly string into the audience and everyone cheered. And I ended up getting elected to our student council. I'm pretty sure because I sprayed silly string into the audience. But what happened is that I did not get this idea pre-approved by our principal. <laughs> and when I went to our principal to organize this school-wide silly string day, it was a hard no. This is not happening. For multiple reasons, I was told. And I learned something that you can't make promises you can't deliver on. And if I were to do that my whole life, constantly say one thing and do another, I would lose the trust of people I care about. And my guess is that Deborah was the kind of leader that did what she said. That's why people would go to battle for her. The second thing I think we can take from this story is that leadership is not is not the same as authority. You look at the leaders in this scripture. Jael and Deborah have very different backgrounds. Right? Deborah has um, influence. She has some clout. She has titles like judge, mother of Israel. She probably has some fame. Jael, I'm not sure she had any of that. She lived in a tent. Her skill set was seen by the culture as potentially less desirable and admirable. But God needed one specific skill when he called Jael to fight, and that was how to pitch a tent. She needed to know how to use a hammer and a peg and nothing else. And I think that's how God often works in our lives, that he's not calling us necessarily to be more and have more, although that can be good and necessary also, but oftentimes he will meet us where we are at with the skills we have to collaborate with us in his greater promise. I took a class from my friend at Rice University called How to Have Influence Without Authority. Or sorry, the art and practice of influencing without authority. And it was in that class that my friend Judy Lee, she defined leadership through an adaptive leadership framework. And she said, leadership is not a title you have, but it's something you do. And more simply, it is mobilizing people to do difficult work or face a difficult reality to create positive change. 
And Jael and Deborah did both those things. Deborah mobilized people to do difficult work to create positive change. And Jael faced a a difficult reality to create positive change. And both were necessary as part of this victory. When I first moved to Houston in 2010, I was about to graduate um, with a master's from Rice University. And on paper and from the outside, my life looked good. Um, But at the time, I was struggling with an addiction to a prescription medication, which I've talked about in some other sermons. I was feeling lost and isolated and lacking of purpose. And I had a college friend move to Houston around the same time. Her name is Chris Spencer, and she actually goes to this church. If you've seen Chris, you know she's a beautiful uh, 6'2 or 6'3 basketball player. She's tall and athletic. She's also really smart. And um, she moved to Houston, and she asked if I wanted to play pickup basketball downtown at the Fondy Rec Center. And this was during the NBA lockout. And I, I said yes. Um, I put on my track shoes, because I didn't have basketball shoes with me, and some running shorts. And I walked into Fondy Rec Center downtown on Sabine Street. And there were NBA players scrimmaging at the time. And they were alley-oop dunking on each other. And I thought, Chris, you can play in those games. I think I will literally die if I play against NBA players right now. And we found these three other guys that day. And no offense to them, but they did not look like NBA players. And we asked them if they wanted to scrimmage us off on one of the side basketball hoops. And we kept in touch with these guys. One of them's uh, name was Andrew, and the other was Greg. And they were teaching high school at a high school here in Houston. And I was telling them kind of about my predicament. I was about to graduate. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And they said, you should teach at our high school. And I said, I'm I'm not probably competent to teach a high school-level course. The only course I could maybe teach, because I've done a lot of writing in school, is writing. But I don't even think I could do the whole literature part, which would be English class. So I wouldn't be a good teacher. And I went on their website, and they were hiring for one position. And for the first time ever, they were requesting that they were going to start a writing-only program at this school. And they needed a writing-only teacher for English composition for freshmen and sophomores. So I ended up applying. I got the job. I went to Chicago to do a summer teacher training. And as I look back on my life, um, that year teaching really changed the trajectory of a lot of my life. My husband and I ended up starting a nonprofit, which many of y'all were a part of in this room. And collectively, with the Houston community, we raised almost 200, no, $2 million over the next seven years. Uh, Ruth Turley, who's here today, directed some of our mission and guided me along the way as well. But I think, had I not gone to this pickup basketball game with NBA players, 
that probably never would have happened. And I think that's how God works. Oftentimes when you feel the most lost and the most out of place, when we look back, we see that like JL, God was able to use us. Because I bet JL's days were not filled with excitement and purpose and meaning. But God needed the exact skills she had in that moment. And thousands of years later, we're sitting in this room talking about how amazing JL is. That's how God often works. When we feel the most lost, according to the parable of the lost son and the lost sheep, is actually when God feels we're found. And finally, and this is the last point I think we can take from this lesson, although there's many, is that Deborah modeled collaboration in leadership. She said yes to Barak. She said yes to God. But what I find most impressive about JL, or sorry, about Deborah, is that she was willing to give JL all the credit. Remember, she told Barak, she said, if I go on this mission with you, a woman is gonna get all the credit for taking down of Sisera. And that's exactly what happened. And Deborah was willing to not only share that credit, but to give it to JL. Because in the Song of Deborah, which is the following chapter, she praises JL for her leadership and her courage in that moment. And we live in a world, Ecclesia, and we do this to ourselves, where women are often pitted against each other. Are you team Meghan Markle or Kate Middleton? Are you team Haley Bieber or Selena Gomez? When I was in high school, it was, are you team Lauren Conrad or Kristen Cavallari? That's a millennial pop culture reference, I apologize. But this happens all the time, not just in our media culture, but we do it too. I remember being in my parents' car and we drove by Nina Brown's house. And Nina Brown was a really good basketball player on our team and she was out practicing. And I remember, I didn't think, oh good, our team is gonna be even better. I remember thinking, I gotta get home and practice. Nina Brown's out practicing more than me. We live in a society where competition is often prioritized over collaboration and in this story, it is collaborative leadership that wins the battle. And ultimately, it's not JL that wins or Barack or Deborah, but it's God. And what unites us here today in this community is that as Christians in the Christian church, we believe that the ultimate way to lead is always to follow. And that's to follow the example of Christ. And that example is one of collaboration. It's one where leadership is called, not just in positions of authority, but in all of us. And where we are called to build trust with one another because we share a common mission to follow him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.